0: We're looking today at the topic of assurance of salvation. I want to talk about the assurance of salvation or sometimes talked about the assurance of faith. And by assurance, we mean confidence. I'm assured, I'm confident that I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. And I want to center my comments this morning around two questions. Two questions that... uh, I want to cover and deal with this morning. First, is assurance of salvation possible? There's the first question. Is assurance of salvation possible? And if so, second, the second question is, how can we be assured of our salvation? Now, to the first question, uh, is assurance of salvation possible? You might say, sure. Sure. We talk about it all the time. Pastor Ken talked about it this morning. <clears throat> I thought he was going to talk about everything I was going to say this morning. I don't know. I don't know if he got an advanced copy of my notes here or what. How you know what he did here, but he was he was trampling all over what I was going to say this morning. So I got to talk to him about about that. I'm joking. But the first question is: Assurance of salvation possible? Uh, sure, salvation is obviously possible. Everybody believes that. Well, that's not exactly true. Not every Christian group, not every Christian denomination believes that individual salvation of assurance is possible, that you can know that you're going to heaven when you die. This idea that a believer can be assured in this life of their eternal destiny has been quite an important topic, quite a controversial topic, actually, in the history of the church. The Roman Catholic Church, for instance. The Roman Catholic Church denies that assurance of salvation is possible except in extraordinary circumstances. So first of all, we want to look at the question, is assurance of salvation possible? And second... If we believe that we can have assurance of our salvation, which I believe we can, and I assume you agree with that too, that we can have assurance of our salvation, how can we be assured that we're actually saved? I say here, by what means can we be assured we have eternal life that we will go to heaven? Now, of course, to answer that question, we have to look at the Bible. But I want to begin with the first question. First question. Is assurance of salvation possible? And I want to look at some historical background to this doctrine of assurance in the history of the church. As we look back at the doctrine of assurance in the history of the church, I want to set up our discussion with a couple of quotations. I want to see if you would agree or disagree with these quotations. A and B. The first one, A. I got off the internet. I don't know with whom it originated, but I've seen it numerous places. I think I stole it from Phyllis's uh, Facebook page. Phyllis, I think I stole it from you. But I, I noticed it was it was <laughs> it was on a bunch of uh, places on the internet. But it d- doesn't say who exactly originated. But it goes like this: I never want to be the kind of Christian who portrays themselves as perfect i have flaws and i have and have struggles that's why i need jesus and i wonder if you would agree with that statement and i think most of us would say yeah yeah i agree with that the second quotation b here is one you may remember because pastor ken has mentioned it on a couple of occasions since i've been here And he mentioned it, I think, just a month or two, a couple months ago. It's this one. It's actually a question. Do you have to be good to go to heaven? Do you have to be good to go to heaven? And Pastor Ken told us that his theology teacher, Dr. McCune, my colleague at the seminary, late Dr. McCune, he used to ask his students in class, um... Given what we just said about you know agreeing with statement A, he, as Dr. McKinnon would ask his students, "Do you have to be good to go to heaven?" And there are the students there thinking, and you know the, the natural answer is no, no, you don't have to be good to go to heaven. Um, that's what students would say, but Dr. McKinnon would say, "Well, yeah, you have to be good. Not only do you have to be good, you got to be perfect." He would say you have to be perfect to go to heaven. So let's consider this dilemma of A and B. One says, I'm not perfect, I have struggles, but I believe I'm going to heaven. And then this other one suggests, no, you've got to be good, you've actually got to be perfect. How do we harmonize those two? Can we harmonize those true? Uh, if no Christian is perfect, but I have to be perfect to go to heaven... How can Bill Combs have assurance that he'll go to heaven? Now, I mentioned the Roman Catholic Church again because I'm going to talk about them quite a bit here. <clears throat> the Roman Catholic Church also believes you have to be perfect to go to heaven. So, uh, the church says no Christian, no Christian should say that they're assured that they're going to heaven when they die. They shouldn't acclaim that. In fact, the church says it's a sin for you as a Christian, as a Roman Catholic, to claim or to say, I know I'm going to heaven when I die. The only exception, they say, would is if you get a direct revelation from God, like the thief on the cross. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Okay, if that happens to you, then you'll know. But if that hasn't happened to you, there's no way you can know. Now, the answer here to this dilemma, this contradiction, A and B, Christians are not perfect, but must be perfect to go to heaven, is that there's really no contradiction if we understand these are referring to two different aspects of the doctrine of salvation. The questions are really talking about two different aspects, sanctification and justification so the point is i'm not perfect quotation a is i'm not perfect in my sanctification in my spiritual growth in my daily life as a christian i'm not perfect in that sense my sanctification but i am perfect in my justification So we have to understand those two ideas. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, again, denies the biblical doctrine of justification. They deny what we believe, what Pastor Ken was talking about this morning, about the righteousness of Christ and all that. They deny all that. And so you can't have assurance of salvation because they don't believe in the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, on uh, our next point, Roman numeral two there, I've got a little diagram here and uh, trying to illustrate these two aspects of our salvation. So we can encompass our salvation with the term union with Christ. One of the most common ways to talk about being saved in the New Testament is we are in Christ. We are in Christ. That's 88 times the Bible talks about being in Christ. And because we are united with Christ There's a lot of things that we have As part of our salvation The two key things Are justification and sanctification They always flow from the fact That we are united with Christ We've been justified in the past That gives us our perfect position That we need And sanctification is that we are imperfect in practice, but God is working on us, as we learned this morning. So we have been justified, and we are being sanctified, and one day we will be perfectly glorified. So, in order to understand uh, the assurance of salvation and to see what's wrong with the Roman Catholic Church's view, we have to just review here the biblical doctrine of justification and sanctification. The word justify, I say here, is a forensic or legal term with the meaning acquit. It's the normal word to use when the accused is declared not guilty. Like in a court of law, the judge says not guilty. It means to declare righteous, not to make righteous. It's the opposite of condemn. To condemn does not mean to make wicked, but to declare guilty. Similarly, to justify means to declare just. To be justified means to be acquitted by God from all the charges that could be brought against a person because of their sins. Here's Grudem in his theology. He says, justification, he's giving a definition, is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, God, thinks of our sins as forgiven, And Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, declares us to be righteous in his sight. So we have this perfect position, our standing, our legal position in Christ. God views us in Christ as being perfect. And that, as we'll see, is the real basis for any assurance that we can have. I say here, one aspect of our justification includes the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Romans 4, 5 through 8. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So, justification includes the forgiveness of our sins. We're not going to be punished. We're not going to suffer a penalty. There will be no penal consequence for our sins. Christ died as a penal substitute for our sins. So sometimes you hear the definition, justification means just as if I never sinned. And that's okay, but that's only one aspect of justification. That's just this negative side. Forgiveness of sins. There's more to justification than that. The second, number three, the second aspect of our justification is God imputing, that means crediting, the perfect righteousness of Christ to us. God imputes, that is, regards or counts the righteousness of Christ as belonging to us. He credits it to our account. Paul says in Romans 5, 19, through one man disobedience of one man Adam we became sinners righteous he says made righteous through Christ and back in that Romans 4 5 and 8 that had the same too because it starts off however to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the God their faith is credited as righteousness David speaks about the blessings of the one whom God credits righteousness imputes righteousness apart from works so in justification, we are declared righteous, are credited as righteous, and the righteousness is not our own, but it's the righteousness of another. Now, Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he discovered this truth, he called it alien righteousness. You know, it's alien. It's not ours. It's not what we do. It's alien righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ. That's credited to us. So Paul says here in Philippians 3 But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So here's where most everybody in the world is at. You know, if you ask them, are you going to heaven? Well, you know, I'm trying to do good. They're trying to follow some code that they've made up or whatever. It's, it's a righteousness according to the law. Paul's talking about the Mosaic law, but it could be any moral code. So most people think, you know, when I get to heaven, God's going to put my good works on the one side of the balance and my bad works on the other side. And if the good works outweigh the bad works, then I'll get in. They're trying to obtain righteousness by doing good, by keeping a moral code, the law. And Paul says, no, no not having a righteousness of my own that you get by trying to keep the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That's that imputed righteousness, that credited righteousness. So in justification, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. I say, number four, there's actually a double imputation in salvation. The penalty of our sin is imputed to Christ, and his righteousness is imputed to us. So, Christ, when he was on earth, Pastor Ken's always emphasizing this here. He talks about the active and passive obedience of Christ. So, when Christ was on earth, he lived a perfect life. That was his active obedience. And he died for our sins on the cross. That's his passive obedience. And we need both of those. So the, the death on the cross brings forgiveness of sins, pays the penalty. And that life he lived, a righteous life, is applied to us. We're counted as Christ. And so Paul says here... Um, In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made Christ who had no sin to be sin for us. Now, he didn't make him a sinner. He didn't. But he counted him as sin. He credited him with our sin. He penalized him for our sin. He became a penal substitution. He paid the penalty for our sin. So that in him, we're in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So I can have assurance, I can be assured that I'm saved and I'll go to heaven because God imputes the sins of Bill Combs, past sins, present sins, and future sins to Christ. And God credits Bill Combs with the righteousness of Christ. So there's justification I'm perfect in that sense, but God also sees me as I really am. He's made me anew, and he's working on me, (laughs) and that's sanctification, progressive sanctification. The basic meaning of the term sanctifies is set apart to make holy. In sanctification, the believer is set apart from sin and set apart to God. In justification, God declares us righteous. In sanctification, God makes us righteous. So God's interested in making us righteous, but we'll never get into heaven based upon how righteous we become. It's never going to be good enough. We get into heaven because of the righteousness of Christ. Progressive number two, sanctification is the process by which a believer is gradually being set apart from the power and practice of sin throughout this life. The believer is progressively becoming holy. Paul says it's God's will that you should be sanctified progressively, that you should grow spiritually, that you should mortify, put sin to death. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its desires. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting wholeness out of reverence for God. Three. So the, although God is at work in my sanctification, making me righteous, I will never achieve close, any close perfection in this life. So, you know, the old story when you get to heaven and St. Peter's there. Remember those jokes and he asks you, why Why should I let you into heaven? You know, well, if that happens to you, the right answer is, <laughs> because Christ has died for my sins and his righteousness has applied, been applied to me and I'm coming in on the basis of that not on the basis of my own sanctification or merit or righteousness i say d here justification and sanctification can and must be distinguished from each other but they must and cannot be separated from each other so they're distinguished we can talk about one and the other but they can't be separated in the sense that justification always leads to sanctification A person who is born again, saved, justified, God begins to work in their life to bring them to a holy life. And sometimes that's hard work on us. (laughs) Sometimes we're disciplined and chastened and we have a lot of tough times so that God can get our attention and bring us around. So those who are justified will also experience progressive sanctification. All Christians are being made holy, sanctified, but again, they'll never be perfect in this life. But we're perfect in our justification, our standing before God. So because the righteousness of Christ has been accredited to us, we can be assured of our salvation. So when Dr. McCune asked his students, told his students, you got to be perfect to get into heaven, he wasn't talking about their sanctification. He was talking about perfect in your justification because the righteousness of Christ Has been applied. Let's talk about Roman numeral three here. Assurance in history for a moment. Because I said this has been a controversial topic. Throughout church history. I say here when I was first saved. We were taught a simple method to evangelize people. Called the Romans road. Does anybody remember that Romans road approach you know. Romans three twenty three, all have sinned and so forth. You know, um, I think we had a book by Jack Howells, The Romans wrote or something. But anyway, and so we would often ask people. You know, when you're trying to go out door to door, you're evangelizing. You're asked. You'd say, "If you died tonight, would you go to heaven?" You know, "If you died tonight, would you go to heaven?" You try to find out their spiritual condition. You know where they're at. So we would ask them sometimes, "If you died tonight, would you go to heaven?" And hopefully all of us would say, yes. Yes, we believe that we would go to heaven because we're trusting Christ and his righteousness. But if we go back in history, let's say we go back to the year 1500. 1500. In Europe. I'm talking about Western Europe. So let's say Britain, uh, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, all of Western Europe. If you went back in 1500... There was not a person, not a single person, at least according to the Roman Catholic Church, and all of Western Europe is the Roman Catholic Church, there's not a single person who would say yes to that question. If they, if you ask anybody in Europe in 1500, if you die tonight, would you go to heaven? Not a single person would say yes, or should say yes, according to the church. Not even the popes would say yes. Why was that? I say, be here... In 1500, the Roman Catholic Church taught and still teaches today that the only righteousness that God recognizes or accepts is the righteousness that is produced by the individual Christian that is formed or infused in the believer. Now we're talking about imputed righteousness of Christ. They're talking about infused righteousness. Righteousness. The church believes that you have to be good to go to heaven. But you have to make yourself good. The Roman Catholic Church denies the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone. And it denies the truth of the imputed righteousness of Christ. They deny that justification means to declare righteous. But instead, they say it means to make righteous. So, for the believer to be accepted into heaven, if you're a Roman Catholic, you've got to become righteous. Now, what's happening here is the Roman Catholic Church is really sort of merging justification and sanctification, they're just one big thing. And there is no judicial, there's no declaration. It's just you've got to become righteous. You're not really justified until you get to heaven, until you're made perfect. So to be saved, one must have faith plus works. So this is the dividing line here of the Roman Catholic Church. It's not faith alone, faith plus works. Now, this is not, I'm not making something up here. They state it absolutely and categorically. Famous Council of Trent in about 1550, you know, after the Reformation gets going, they just spell it out. I could have quoted them here. It's faith plus works. And they say, if you say you're justified by faith alone, then anathema on you. See, righteousness, the church insists, must be infused in the believer. We must become righteous in our persons to enter heaven. We must have perfect righteousness to get into heaven. So how does one do that? I got a little chart there of medieval view of uh, sanctification, of salvation. So how do we do that? Through the sacraments of the church. So you become righteous through the sacraments of the church. Baptism, the mass, confession to a priest, doing penance. You see, all those are Necessary to become righteous. But they're never sufficient to make you righteous enough to enter directly into heaven. So, therefore, almost every Christian has to go to a place called purgatory. So, even though you do all these things, you confess your sins, you do penance, you do that, and that helps you lessen your time in purgatory. You still are not going to be perfect. Well, we know that because we don't know any Christian that we know who's died and has gone to heaven was perfect. (laughs) So the Roman Catholic Church says, well, they're going to have to go to this place called purgatory. It's a place of suffering, a kind of Christian hell where you're punished, you're purified. How long will you be there? Who knows? Hundreds of years, thousands of years, millions of years. You might be there. There's just no way to know how long you'll be there. Until your sins are purged and you're made perfect and then you can enter heaven. I say D here, there are exceptions to this. People that the church has named as saints, they went directly to heaven. So Mary went directly to heaven, but the saints, these are people who... Somehow, did enough good works to enter directly into heaven. And the church declares them, canonizes them to be saints of the church. And they go directly to heaven. And this is a, all a very convoluted, heretical system, you know. You can actually pray to the saints and ask them to help you and offer prayers for people in purgatory. It's just a nefarious whole system, unfortunately. So if you ask your Roman Catholic friend, if you ask them, you know, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? They would probably look at you with somewhat, they would, they would be somewhat bewildered if you said, hey, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? You know, they would know, well, what do you mean? Nobody believes that? I don't know anybody who believes if you died tonight, you'd go to heaven. My priest doesn't believe that. If he died tonight, he'd go to heaven. So when you tell a Catholic friend, if you say, I believe that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven, they're going to see you say, they're going to think you're pretty prideful, actually. (laughs) Hey, this guy is really full of it, you know. (laughs) Because they believe that one has to merit heaven. You've got to be good enough to get into heaven. And since you've got to, you're got you not good enough on earth, you're going to have to go to purgatory. So nobody's going directly to heaven unless you're one of the saints or unless God has a direct revelation like the thief on the cross and says, you'll be with me in paradise this day. I say here, E, the... Uh, Protestant Reformation was the recovery of the true gospel which had been corrupted by the Roman Catholic Church over time, it should be, which had been corrupted. The Reformation was the recovery of the truth of justification by faith alone. Now, most of us know that we commonly date the beginning of the Reformation with the year 1517. Remember, I said in 1500, there wasn't anybody who could have assurance of the salvation or was supposed to have assurance. But if you'd have asked that question in 1600, you'd have had all kinds of people who said, yeah, I believe I'm going to heaven when I die. All kinds of people in 1600 because of what happened in the Reformation. And Luther nails those 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg, Germany. Remember, Luther was a priest. Uh, he was actually a very educated man he had gotten a, a masters degree actually but he was always concerned about a little bit concerned about his own state remember the story goes he was in kind of a lightning storm and he said st anna if you'll save me i'll devote my life to god you know and so he, he goes into the monastery he becomes a monk augustinian monk and for the first time he sees a bible now, well, this is why people didn't know anything in 1500 because <laughs> printing press is invented in 1450, but the Bible's not being distributed. The Roman Catholic Church is not distributing the Bible. Nobody has a Bible. The Bible's in Latin, really. Few people can read Latin except very educated people. So Martin Luther, the first time he sees a Bible is when he enters the monastery. And uh, he begins to study. And he begins to see what the church has been teaching about salvation is wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches. You know the Bible is teaching something entirely different here, and uh, so he uh, he began to have a reformation. He began to see the truth. I say, after here through his study of the Bible, Luther came to understand what we discussed earlier about how that as a Christian we are imperfect in our sanctification but perfect in our justification." Luther expressed this in a famous motto, saying that believers are. Simul justus et picator. Everybody did Latin back in those days. And so literally, something like simultaneously just and a sinner. So something like justified at the same time a sinner. So he got those two truths, see? He said, the Bible teaches that we're justified, justification, we're righteous in Christ, but at the same time, in our sanctification, we're still sinful. We're justified and a sinner. He declared, we are in truth and totally sinners with regard to ourselves and our first birth. Contrawise, insofar as Christ has been given to us, we are holy and just totally. Hence, from different aspects, we are said to be just and sinners at one and the same time. Thus, a Christian man is righteous and a sinner at the same time, holy and profane, an enemy of God and a child of God. So Luther explained, he's explaining here, that we can enjoy assurance because our right, the righteousness we depend on, is not our own. Remember, he called it alien righteousness. We take hold on a hold of Christ, he said, who is our righteousness. He goes on to say, but because faith is weak, it's not perfected without the imputation of God. Hence faith begins righteousness, but imputation perfects it until the day of Christ. Sin remains in us, and God hates that very much. Because of them It is necessary for us to have the imputation of righteousness which comes to us on account of Christ who is given to us and grasped by our faith. say, gee here, Luther rejected the Roman Catholic notion that one couldn't have assurance of salvation. Believers enjoy assurance because we don't save ourselves but we look only to Christ for salvation and so our faith gives, it should say, us assurance because faith grasps and possesses who Christ is for us. So Luther comes along, Calvin, other reformers come along, the Protestants come along, and they're all very dogmatic. Contrary to the Roman Catholic Church, we can have assurance of salvation. And this became a big dividing line between the church and the Protestants. Uh, Roman Catholic Cardinal Bellarmine was a very famous theologian in the 1500s. He was the Pope's personal theologian. We've mentioned this quote here a number of times at church here, but he's famous for saying, if you look at the Protestants, their worst heresy was this doctrine of assurance. Well, it was. Because if we can know that we're going to heaven, then all this Roman Catholic mumbo-jumbo is for nothing. What are we doing all this for? What are we doing all these works and penance and indulgences and praying to the saints and you know what what is what's that all about? If we know and he said that's the worst heresy. That the average Christian could be assured they possessed eternal life. And so he saw it as a direct attack on the system of the Roman Catholic Church. What they say in H is justification equals faith plus works. They believe this truly it's not something I'm just making up and putting in there. <clears throat> now, Roman number four. Assurance of salvation is normal for the Christian. It's normal, I say, for a Christian to have assurance of their salvation. Uh, Whitby says, Assurance of salvation is a God-given awareness that he has accepted the death of Christ on your behalf and has forgiven you of your sins. It involves confidence that God loves you, that he has chosen you, And that you will go to heaven. Assurance includes a sense of freedom from the guilt of sin. Relief from the fear of judgment. And joy in your relationship with God as your father. Remember 1 John 5.13 says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God. So that you may know you have eternal life. I say here when initially saved some people will have strong assurance. But not all do. One can be a Christian without a strong sense of assurance. Doubting assurance is not belief. Probably most Christians will have occasions of doubt. It's not uncommon. It's probably common. What are some causes of doubt here? One, spiritual immaturity may contribute to doubt about assurance. So those who are spiritually immature, those who have only recently been saved and know less about the word of God and the great truths of salvation, they haven't really understood justification as we've been talking about it here. They may have doubts. This includes people who have been saved for some time, but they've never taught. I've met many people like this who seem to have really been saved, but they they were just never in a church. They were never really taught. And they just don't, You know, they just don't know much and they don't have much assurance of salvation. Two, sensitivity to sin may cause confusion about assurance. This is especially an issue for new believers who now see how serious sin is for the first time. You know, man, I didn't realize how serious this was. But this 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 uh, sensitivity to sin is actually one of the best signs you are a Christian. Most unbelievers don't run around worrying about their sin. Now, they have a conscience, and so they're affected by that some, but they're not in constant turmoil, you know, about their sins that they do. But believers are. The Holy Spirit within makes us aware that we're lacking in holiness, so there's a sense in which this kind of doubt can be good for us. You know, if we're sinning a lot, if we're away from the Lord, if we're not coming to church, if we're just out there doing our thing sinfully, we, we should have some doubts, you know. That's God. He's reminding us, hey, does a Christian live like that and act like that? Three, comparison with other Christians may cloud assurance. The amount of fruit Christians produce varies. Jesus says when he's talking about that parable about the, the soils, and, and he says there's three different results, four different results, and only one of them is a true Christian. But the seed falling on the good soil, the true Christian, refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, fruit, evidence of salvation, yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. So some true Christians are not as fruitful as other true Christians. We don't all produce the same amount of fruit at the same time. But every true Christian will eventually bear some fruit, some evidence. Four, childhood conversion affects the assurance of some. You know, those who are saved early can often have doubts because they don't clearly remember the details. And they think back, was I saved then or... You know, not they—they they don't have some dramatic change in their life, like maybe an adult would, and so they wonder, you know, about that. That can cause it. That can cause sometimes a lack of assurance. Uh, let's talk about the primary basis of assurance. So, there's two questions: Is it possible to have assurance? Yes, it is. We should. God wants us to. But then, what are the means? For having assurance of our salvation. We have what we might call primary means and secondary means. The primary are more objective, the secondary are more subjective. So the primary or the objective basis is we might just say scripture, the Bible. And I sort of divide this three things, but it's hard. They're all interrelated. We're talking about what scripture says about our salvation. We can, we can have assurance because it tells us about who God is. God's character. Paul says, 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. We can trust God's promises to save us just like Paul did because our God is perfect and good. Paul was not relying on anything that he had done but on the character of God. We can rely on promises like John 6, 37. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. In Philippians 1, 6. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ Jesus. And God does not change his mind. Paul says God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. So there's God making these promises to us. And we're trusting who God is. The work of Christ. We can be assured of our salvation because of the work of Christ for us. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son he loves. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Christ's death did not just make salvation possible for people. He actually saved those who believe in him. The angel told Joseph that Jesus would save his people from their sins. Paul said that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Did he accomplish his mission? Certainly he did, didn't he? And because he had fully accomplished his mission, Paul says, therefore, there is, no, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's the promises of God. Now, we've sort of looked at promises here, but other promises. We can be assured of our salvation, salvation because God's promises are true. Because of who God is, who Christ is. Of course, we all know John three sixteen. God loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life, shall not perish, but have eternal life. John five twenty four. verily, very truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life presently and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Acts 2.21, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Then there is, uh, that's the primary means. So when we're trying to gain assurance of salvation, we want to look at what the Bible says, the promises of God, what he says about those who trusted Christ. There is a secondary and related call the witness of the Spirit. Romans 8.16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, I'm saying this is not direct revelation from God, but it's indirect. Spirit testifies with our spirit. So it's not like I'm sitting down in my living room and the Spirit whispers to me and say, You know, Bill Combs, you're saved. It's not that direct revelation. The Spirit influences our thinking and leading us to decide that we are saved. The Spirit takes the positive affirmations we saw in point 5, that is the primary of the Scripture. The Spirit takes the Scripture and confirms what the Bible says is true. This is related to the Spirit's work of illumination that Paul spells out in 1 Corinthians two fourteen. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So the unbeliever does not accept the Bible as true and genuine. We do, because we're indwelt by the Spirit. He illuminates our hearts and minds. So when we read those scriptures, those promises, if you believe on Jesus, you're saved. The Spirit says, yes, that's true. And that's true for you. The Spirit creates an acceptance and belief in us concerning what we read in the Bible. Two, the farther we get away from the Word, the less assurance we will experience in this life. The more we're in the Word, the more we understand about the Bible, the more He can illuminate it, and He can confirm to our souls that we are the children of God. So that's one reason, you know, that's one reason we come to church. We don't come to church primarily because we're just sort of commanded to, you know, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves, but we come for reasons to benefit. And one of the benefits we get is we hear the word of God like we did this morning. And that helps us. The spirit uses that to confirm the fact that we are believers, strengthens us. So the spirit works with the word. Then there's perseverance finally. Perseverance means that we are truly saved and ultimately produce fruit in keeping with their profession. Those who are truly saved will produce fruit. So in thinking about that fruitfulness, just remember that we're not saved by works. We're justified by faith alone. But the reformers, like Martin Luther would always say, we're saved by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. We're saved by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. That is, this faith is going to result, the fruit of that faith is going to be evidence, fruit, good works. So I said justification earlier cannot be separated from sanctification. They can be distinguished, but they're not separated. One who is justified will be sanctified progressively. Now, as I said earlier, the amount of fruit you produce, that can vary, varies at times. But hopefully if you look back on your life, don't look back last week or last month, <laughs> but look back a year, two years, five years. You know, you should say, yeah, I'm not what I used to be. You know, I'm not what I what I should be, what I want to be, but I'm not what I was five years ago. I can see God has worked in my life and produced fruit in me. So we have texts that say that like Ephesians 2.8, we're saved through faith a gift of God, not of works. But Paul goes on to say, we are God's handiwork in Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus to good works. So God's created us anew, anew for good works. In 1 John 2, 3 through 4, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person. So sometimes this is represented like a little triangle, the primary thing are the promises of God, and they, they're interrelated. The witness of the Spirit works with those, and we have our own growth and holiness that we look at and we see as evidence that, yes, God is at work in us. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the great truths of salvation that allow us to have assurance that we know that if we died, even this day, Because we have trusted Christ, we will be with you. To be absent from the body, as Paul says, is to be present with the Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.